Welcome to the Katie Halpert Show. Hi, Leslie. How are you? I'm good. How's it going? Oh, it's okay. You know, had some tech issues. That's never fun. The show must go on. Show even must go not on. on time. Yeah. <laughs> we are here. Thank you all so much for joining us. Happy to see you. We're very grateful. It's very fun. We have some great, great, great guests. We always have great co-hosts. And that includes, of course, Leslie Lee. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome back. And today on our show, we have Rania Kalik, journalist, fearless journalist, Rania Kalik, and she'll be talking about Syria. Um, also wanted to give people the chance to become Patreon supporters. Also want to thank all the people who are Patreon supporters because people have joined since since this week even. So I want to give a big shout out to all of those people. What else? Leslie. Uh, Dr. Seuss was canceled. Oh, yes. Dr. Seuss was canceled. So why is he, he's bad? He didn't like Japanese people. Is that correct? Uh, he has some ra- just racist cartoons. It's nothing new, nothing new to Dr. Right. People have been talking about this for forever. So they just what? said they're going to take a couple of the books um, out of print. But like they have like the 25 other ones. Like how many do, do you need <laughs> really? That is, I mean, really, what if, what it was just a couple of books that they had burned, Leslie? Really? <laughs> just a couple of books? Wow. Wow. And I thought I had an ally here. But it is funny. I mean, what is the, I don't know what the, like, calculate, is it a numbers game? Is it like the numbers or is it the availability or is it, what determines whether, how canceled something is? Or you, for you, this isn't even cancellation. Yeah, this doesn't doesn't count. It's just books going out of print. This happens all the time. This happens all the time to books. This like the people, the people. What are the books? What are the books? Do we know? There's a a list and you're probably not, there was only one that anybody even pretended to know, which is something about Mulberry Street. Something, something Mulberry Street. I don't know it, but it is a street in New York City. Um, It's probably a street in lots of places. Yeah, I don't know that one. It's actually a street in Springfield, Massachusetts, by the way. And of course, Springfield, as everyone knows, is a town that exists in every state. So let's see. I'm uh, I'm really excited about this. I'm not excited about the Dr. Seuss thing. I got to dig into it, honestly. I'm, I got to come with the receipts more. I feel like he, if that book in itself, I don't know. I guess people decide to print or not print things. It's what, but I don't, I'm not comfortable with the marketplace being the marketplace. Well, look, I can't give away my take for free because we're doing struggle session. On oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. I, yeah. have a, I, I have answered specifically to that question. That's Did good. you want to do the yeah. show with us? It's tomorrow at noon, actually, if you want. Oh, maybe. On. I mean, what would be really funny is people are going to know how much. Uh, what if I came on tomorrow at noon? And I was like, look, for years, I've been saying that Mulberry <laughs> Street is an unacceptable piece of literature. And I've been pushing them to not only not print it, but I've been pushing book burnings <laughs> for Mulberry Street. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe I can. That would be fun. Let's bring in uh, Rania Kalik. Rania Kalik, journalist Rania Kalik, um, the host of Unauthorized Disclosure. Uh, Rania, welcome. Hey, how you doing, hey. guys? Good, hey. you? Good. I'm like trying to. Um, I'm I'm failing miserably to like do lighting right. I don't know why I can't get it right because I'm always recording at night my time, so I have like no natural light to work with. So I apologize for my like complexion at the moment. I don't, I'm not really this color. <laughs> nice try. Are you trying to get me on camera co-signing your apology for your complexion? Yeah, a hundred percent. No, I don't, I'm not. I don't think so. <laughs> nice try. But um, I tried. I tried. Yeah. So what time is it where you are, by the way? 
It is 2.41 a.m. I feel great. Wow. You look great. <laughs> Coffee. And, Thank you. And why are you, you know what I have, by the way, little, little trick, by the way. Mm. You see this? Ooh. It's sitting right next Beans. to you. Yeah, so you yeah. eat them. I eat, but it's hard because I have to have a break because they could get stuck in the teeth and then some dark chocolate. It's a good combo. It's not a good combo. So tell us about uh, where you are, first of all. So I'm in Beirut, Lebanon, where I usually live. Um, Just like a hop, skip, and a... What do they say? Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I'm going to be a little slow. Hop, skip, and a jump. No, it's okay. We're a a couple hours. No, it's fine. (laughs) A hop, skip, and a jump away from Syria, where my favorite grandfather, Joe Biden... Um, happened to drop a few bombs last week, as you know. Um, so it's been quite interesting. Uh, the reaction to it here has been very muted because people are just like used to America bombing. It was kind of weird. Like also it was reported in the news that like 22 people were killed, but actually as far as I can tell so far, not that it makes it okay, but one Iraqi was killed. And he was like a father of two small children who was stationed basically at the U.S. or at the sorry the Syrian Iraqi border to secure it from ISIS? So good on you, Joe Biden. You killed a sorry. fighter of ISIS. Okay, so can you clarify what your? I'm. I think I'm. So he. What was the alleged target of this? So, so yeah, let me give you some backstory yeah. about what happened because people were really confused because they were like, did they bomb Iraq? Like it was right. like he was sending a message to Iran by bombing Iraqis in Syria. So here's what happened. Um, for the last year and a half or so, there are a bunch of like uh, units of the uh, Iraqi p- popular mobilization forces, which in the U.S. media are constantly referred to as like big, bad Iranian-backed Shia militias. Popular mobilization forces in Iraq came into existence after ISIS swept through Iraq. Um, and it was like a national call for the you know people to come volunteer to fight this existential threat of ISIS, which, by the way, came into existence because of U.S. uh, arming and supporting jihadist groups in Syria. Um, That's another story. But anyways, so the majority of Iraqis happen to be Shia. So that's why the majority of the popular mobilization forces are Shia, but they actually have forces that are Yazidi. They have forces that are Sunni. They have units that are Turkmen. So it's not just Shias. It just happens to be that's the majority of the makeup of Iraq. So anyways, the popular mobilization forces that the U.S. calls Shia militias played a played the the most vital role in defeating ISIS in Iraq and also to a degree in Syria, um, in alliance with Iran. Iran was allied with them and like helped arm and fund them as well because Iran was fighting ISIS as well. And so, after the you know almost defeat of ISIS, the Trump administration had turned their entire policy in the Middle East towards maximum pressure against Iran and all of its allies, including these so-called Shia militias. Um, And they turned up the heat with the maximum pressure campaign uh, really hard in 2018. And in fact, the U.S., nobody really paid attention, but under Trump, the U.S. was actually sanctioning a lot of these forces in Iraq as a part of their campaign against Iran, trying to like stop Iran and Iraq from being friends. So these groups got pissed off and they would occasionally to send a message to the u.s they would send rocket they would lob rockets at like u.s bases um or areas where u.s forces were stationed nearby um and they wouldn't kill anyone but they would like launch rockets to be like get out leave yeah and they started calling on the u.s to leave and then and then came the trump administration murdering the iranian general qasem soleimani um, who was in charge of like the Iranian forces that helped defeat ISIS across the region, 
as well as they murdered uh, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, who was the commander of the popular mobilization forces in Iraq, Iraq and like super revered and admired. So these Iraqi militias got even more pissed off. They were like, what the hell, dude? So they demanded the U.S. withdrawal. And they've been making that demand since last year. Um, and occasionally they'll lob rockets uh, and occasionally the U.S. would respond by bombing them in Syria. And so then came Biden. And the Biden administration was supposed to come into office and, you know, relieve the sanctions, right, that were actually also affecting Iraq. People don't know this, but the sanctions on Iran made it impossible for their neighbor Iraq to actually buy fuel from Iran. So Iraq had electricity cuts because of U.S. sanctions making it impossible to buy fuel from Iran, from their neighbor. So Iraqis have a lot of reasons to be pissed off at the U.S. There's still residual forces of the U.S. there that they want out. Um, and this issue with the sanctions. And so after a month of Biden being in office and literally doing nothing to relieve sanctions and nothing moving on like reducing the maximum pressure campaign, these Iraqi militias that are allied with Iran, allied, not backed and not, not like controlled, but allied with Iran, were sending a message to the US. There was like three instances where they lobbed rockets at you know a US base in Erbil, uh, you know, NATO forces in another area and actually the US embassy. And so Biden responded to this by bombing popular mobilization forces stationed in Syria to send a message to the Iraqi militias and to Iran. So it sounds crazy. I hope you can follow me here. No, yeah. But and by the, yeah, by the way, well, I, I was just gonna, say, yeah, yeah, keep going. I was, I was just telling everyone to make sure they share this link because this is really important information. So if you're watching, yeah. seriously, tweet this out because people are saying this is invaluable background and it's true. Well, it is. It is invaluable background and you don't get it anywhere right. because no one really understands what's happening. Or if you're reading in the mainstream press, they always just present it as like Shia, evil Shia militias, evil Iranian militias. Like people think the U.S. bombed Iran in Syria. Right. The reason the U.S. bombs them in Syria is because they can't bomb them in Iraq because that's like a sovereign country that the U.S. is allied with and it brings up a bunch of legal issues. And for some reason, the world has decided that it's OK to treat Syria as like a playground that like five different countries can bomb at once and doesn't matter. So that's why they bomb them in Syria. But the thing is the, the Iraqi units that they did bomb have nothing to do with the Iraqi militias that have been lobbing rockets at the US. Like, so they just like bombed people who had nothing to do with it um, in Syria. And then like I said, killed this like father of two small children. And they, this force that they bombed in Syria, this base that they bombed was Iraqi paramilitaries that were stationed there to fight ISIS. So they're just bombing ISIS's right. enemies in Syria, which makes no sense. And like I, the reason I, I want to make this quick comparison, because I know it gets like confusing because yeah. I'm mentioning all these different countries. But essentially what Biden did is he bombed Iraqis in Syria to send a message to Iran. It would be like if Iran were to bomb like Canadians in Mexico to send a message to America. Right. Like That's how absurd it is what the U.S. is doing. And that said, like, it's not like there's going to be an all out war because of this. There's always space for escalation whenever there's a bombing. But it is really concerning that it's been like two months of Biden and he ran on the idea of returning to the Iran nuclear deal. And so far, he's completely dragged his feet and hasn't done anything. And everyone in the region is getting pissed off because people's lives are miserable because of these sanctions. And this is just for Iran. I mean, there's also sanctions on Syria that ha are like crippling that country and actually starving people right now and preventing the Syrian government from buying oil from an area of Syria where the U.S. is occupying, 
where they're literally just occupying an area of Syria, northeast Syria, where all the oil is. And then the Syrian government's like currency has collapsed because of U.S. sanctions. So they're not even able to buy their own oil, which they shouldn't have to buy in the first place. They only have to buy it because the U.S. is occupying that area. So there's just like the U.S. is causing so many problems here. Lebanon as well, like is affected by this. Lebanon is uh, dealing with U.S. sanctions as well um, because of Hezbollah. The U.S. like sees the entire region as some war against Iran and every single actor is just a proxy of Iran rather than a group that has maybe is allied with Iran, which is the case, like Hezbollah, the PMF, the Syrians, they're allied with Iran because they have similar interests, but they also have their own domestic interests in their own countries. They're not all just Iranian proxies. But the U.S. is making the region so miserable economically. Like, I can't even describe it to you. And it's in the middle of a pandemic. Like, the Syrian health ministry right now is sanctioned. Like, the guy who killed Jamal Khashoggi with a bone saw in Turkey, mm. nothing's going to happen to him. But the Syrian health minister is sanctioned in the middle of a pandemic because all of Syria is evil and we just need to destroy it. Like, that's the mentality of the U.S. government under Republicans and Democrats. Right. It's nice, nice bipartisanship there. Yeah. That we can really yeah. uh, look forward to and, and um, be thankful for. So, you know, I was telling someone about this, like, the day after it happened. We actually found out about the bombing of Syria on the show, right, Leslie? We were... Yeah, uh, yeah, we were me, live. Yeah. Matt Taibbi and Ben, um, uh, Benjamin Studebaker, Studebaker. But I was telling someone about it, and the, my friend was like, okay, so what's the real reason? And I was like, oh, yeah, right. Uh, what is the real reason? Like, why did the... Because I'm so used to the U.S. Ha doing things for the ulterior motive um, that sometimes I'm like, wait, which one is this? Is so this, like, imperial real, you know, stuff? Is this, like, flexing? Is this oil? Is this... Yeah. So what's the, what's real, the reason so the, here? The real reason is, is interesting here. The real reason is, like, the Pentagon, basically, is the Iraqi militias have been lobbing rockets at U.S. area areas where there's U.S. personnel and, like, contractors three times in February, I think. And they can't allow that to happen without a response. That's just the mentality. Like, we can't, we can't let them just keep hitting us, even if they're not killing you, without a response. So we have, to, we have to do something. And so what they did is they bombed this base in Syria. That was, like, the only thing they could come up with was to bomb this base in Syria just to look, just to look strong. That's it. That's all it is. That's, like, U.S. imperialism and arrogance. It's, like, they, they don't want you there. Like, if you don't want to be hit with rockets, get out. Leave. They're telling you to leave. They've been telling you to leave for over a year and you haven't respected it. So what do you expect to happen to you? But of course, like the U.S. think it thinks it like has this, you know, um, right to just be everywhere in the world. <laughs> and like somehow it's like defensive and protecting themselves for them to be in a country on the other side of the world. When those people don't want you there, just get out, go away. Like, and you won't be hit. It's kind of funny. There was recently this... Um, this 60 minutes, I don't know if you saw, there was a 60 minutes uh, episode like a week or so ago about the soldiers that suffered at El Assad Air Base in Iraq that got hit by the Iranians after the U.S. murdered Qasem Soleimani. Guys, hold on. You know, I'm a, okay. You need to give me a trigger warning because I'm a okay. very handsome man, Soleimani. He, isn't he? He's kind of, yeah, okay. Anyways, I, know I, um, I actually like, anyways, he's a revered admired figure to a lot of people across this region because he really is seen as like the killer of ISIS. But yeah. we'll get back the to US. that. We'll, yeah, we'll yeah. get back to that. But the point is, that it's like if you go, if you watch this 60 Minutes episode, it's like interviewing all these soldiers who were at this airbase. No one died, 
but they were hit with like ballistic missiles, Iranian missiles uh, nearby. And so like, it's all these soldiers, they literally are like crying. They're like, I had a headache. Like I had a really bad headache. It was really scary. And I'm, I'm sure it was super scary to have bombs falling around you. But like, what did you think you were doing? Like you're occupying a country that you've been bombing for over a decade. Why are you surprised? Like that's war. Like it was just right. weird. They were just like crying because they were in a war zone, but like they were there voluntarily and they were acting like they didn't realize it. It was so bizarre. So how many people were killed and what was the, um, you know, the, the, the target? Can you talk more about that? What the actual target was? Well, the target was this base near the border of like the, the with the border of Syria and Iraq. It's kind of considered like a no man's land, and it's like an Iraqi militia base. And the reason they have it there is to secure the area against ISIS. I don't know why my my screen keeps going out. I'm sorry, I have no, no idea what's okay. happening. Um, but the the reason they were there was to secure the area against ISIS, and that was what the target was. But there, it's rumored that like the U.S. actually like kind of gave a warning before they did it, so there wasn't that many people there to bomb. So all I know for sure is one guy was killed. There was reports that 22 people were killed, but it was from like the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which isn't really like a credible outlet for these kinds of things. So I'm very skeptical of that because the Iraqis only had one funeral for this one guy. Like mm. that's all I saw in the media coverage here. So, I mean, in the U.S. they were like 22 people. And again, I'm not like defending Joe Biden in any way, but it doesn't appear that that many people were killed. I just at all for all I know for all I know so far is at least one guy was killed. Right. Um, and this base that was targeted again is like this Iraqi militia base. Like, the, you know, it's a very fluid um, border. Uh, it's like the Rockies, Syrians kind of move through. I mean, ISIS was able to move back and forth quite easily. Um, so it's like, it's like states. It's like in the U.S. we have states. It's kind of like those sorts of borders. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so that's in the reason, again, the reason the U.S. hit Syria instead of Iraq is because they can't hit Iraq because that would open a whole can of worms because Iraq is technically a U.S. ally. And they can't bomb it without permission from the Iraqi government. The Iraqi government's not going to give the U.S. permission to bomb militia groups that are incorporated into, like, the Iraqi armed forces. So they have to bomb them in Syria is how right. they see it. So the, the alter it's funny because usually I'm used to, like, the United States downplaying the number right, of casualties. But you're saying in this case they may be... The, the media, it's maybe. It's not the yeah, it's, it's just like, it's just the U.S., it was like one media outlet reported it and everybody just kind of went with it. But yeah, no, but it's I also, actually not clear. But I also wonder if maybe if, the, if, if you're saying that part of the motive was to send a message, not to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but if that was part of the motive, yeah. then maybe they, you know, they want to shy away from, because as long as they're alleged militants, no one cares in this country. Mm-hmm. Like, exactly. that's all you have to say. So exactly. it's not exactly. like a, a kindergarten class. It's mm -hmm. not like Israel style <laughs> or other things that the U.S. does. But U.S.-backed um, Israeli militants. Yeah. Could you imagine calling the Israeli army that? Like U.S.-backed Israeli militants were yeah. shot at today by like. <laughs> yeah. It's, so it's it's interesting because it's it's not. Um, it's not it's more an, an issue of sovereignty, right? That's like the outrage and not to minimize the, the killing of one person. But um, it seems like, um, in a weird way, it's like good for, like Biden, the Biden people had a good outcome in a weird way because 
not that many people were killed, but they yeah. get to, I guess, flex their muscles. So I, I, I don't know how intentional that was, but... Um, no, it was. It was intentional. And again, I'm not like, it's not like you're downplaying it. It's just the reality of the situation. That was intentional. It was like just, because the thing is Iran, Iran does have influence over these groups and they usually are able to control them and, and like, you know, apply some discipline, like don't hit anything U.S., but Iran lost patience. Mm. And you know what? They're just like, hands off. I'm not, I'm not going to tell them not to do it. That's kind of like the attitude that it's been because Iran's suffering from like these crippling sanctions and there's no relief for it. And the Biden administration is now saying that in order, like as a condition for the nuclear deal negotiations to resume, Iran has to go back to a deal that the U.S. broke. So the Iranians have had enough. Like who wouldn't have had enough after four years of Trump destroying their country economically? He's their entire banking system is under sanction. Like, Iran is, like, completely disconnected from the world economy right now because of the U.S. It's, like, economic terrorism. And the Biden administration, despite all of what they're saying, is, like, not doing anything to change it. So are you surprised? Because you were were part of the, the debate that we had on the show about, like, you know, how much the left, whether or not to basically, should the left vote for Biden? Should they support Biden? Should they you know, what is it, hold their nose and vote for him. And you were really kind of in the camp of Biden is terrible, but I think that Trump will be worse. And you brought up how, you know, living in in Lebanon, you had access to or you could see like on the ground the way that these things have ripple effects and disproportionate effects over the perilous, right? It's like a point Noam Chomsky has made too, which is that when you're like the world police, you know, then you have a lot of, obviously, differences that should be bigger. Like, we would love for the differences between Dems and Republicans to be bigger, but even when they're minuscule, they have a ripple effect. And so are you, is this, like, what you predicted? Is this not what you predicted? Um, yeah, how does, I, think this is, yeah. I think this is what I predicted in the sense that, like, I didn't think Biden was going to immediately go back to the nuclear deal. There's definitely less aggression. Even though he bombed Syria, it's still less aggression in the sense that there's more back channels for diplomacy. Um, to de-escalate that violence that, that that didn't exist as months as much during Trump, the kind of stuff that we don't hear about happening is happening behind the scenes. And then also, like, you can't, I mean, it's like, it, we have to also understand the significance of the fact that the U.S. just met with the Houthis, you know? And they really are trying to de-escalate the war in Yemen, even though, like, it's not as ideal as we'd like it to be. Like what's happening in Yemen is this like disgusting, fa- like, uh, you know, famine that Saudi, like it's like a terrible genocide that Saudi Arabia has imposed on Yemen um, with the U.S. backing. And so that is now come like winding down and the U.S. is actually involved in talks with the group that's fighting the Saudis. So that's good. That's definitely good. And that wouldn't happen under Trump. So there's little things like that that make a difference. Like the region's still going to be miserable. People are still right. going to suffer and die. It's just a matter of like the severity of it, which is sad because that's what it comes down to with the U.S. administrations, right? It's like what level of like starvation are these people going to have to face? Like a, one where they can starve but like still be alive or one where they starve and die? Mm. You know what I mean? So, I, you know, it's... It's not fair and it's not right, but I still think it's accurate to say that Trump would have been like a guaranteed war with Iraq and guaranteed more starvation and death, whereas Biden is like not a guaranteed war with Iran, 
sorry, did I say Iraq? I meant Iran. Mm -hmm. And, you know, likely there'll be some sort of negotiation with Iran at some point. And there'll be a little bit like breathing of breathing room. Right. You know, so it's still going to suck. It's still going to suck, which is why I didn't, you know, it's not like a great selling point. Like (laughs) it sounds so messed up. And what is it that like, what it's, what is it like where you are? Um, in Beirut and how, how is it different from, cause you've been going back and forth a bit, right? So what, mm-hmm. what is, how do you in Beirut feel the, um, the ramifications of U.S. foreign policy? Obviously it's very different for you guys than it is for people in Syria, but. Right. Well, yeah, but it's like all connected in so many ways. And of course, like I've been on your show to talk about this before, like Lebanon is uh, right now like experiencing economic collapse. It has been a gradual collapse for the last like year and a half. Um, And it's getting worse. The currency continues to devalue here. So like people's incomes or the money that they do have is worth less and less like every week. Um, And it's, you know, there are U.S. sanctions on Lebanon, but they're not necessarily responsible for the economic collapse. However, the the oligarchs responsible for the economic collapse, they were running a Ponzi scheme economy. They're all allies of the West. Right. Like, so there's that connection there. Um, But there's also the fact that, like, Lebanon is sandwiched in between the Mediterranean Sea, Israel, and Syria. It can't trade or do any sort of economic business with Israel because Israel is its enemy and is constantly threatening to wipe it off the map. So that's out of the question. Um, Syria is Lebanon's neighbor that it used to have huge economic and trading ties with. But the sanctions on Syria uh, actually penalize neighboring countries for doing any business with it. So like it would be like if China sanctioned uh, Mexico or Canada for doing business with the U.S. So the U.S. could no longer trade with them. That's what the U.S. is doing in this region. So Lebanon can't trade with Syria or it'll be penalized. They can't even get electricity from Syria now. Um, and then there's, of course, the, the Mediterranean where there's a port, but there was a port explosion back in August. And Lebanon's an right. import dependent country like completely dependent on imports. So that has screwed the country even more because its main port exploded and was destroyed. So Lebanon is dealing with like this do- the shortage of dollars because it's dependent on dollars like most countries. It has to like buy things and import things with using dollars. Um, it's dealing with US sanctions which crush the banking sector even more than it already is. And it's dealing with a U.S. client aggressive state in the form of Israel, and it can't trade with Syria. So Lebanon's dealing with shortages, and at a time when, like, COVID here the last couple months has exploded, so it's really affecting the medical sector. Um, You know, there's still food in Lebanon as of now, but, like, electricity, that's another thing, is Lebanon Lebanon lives in an oil-rich region. There's massive amounts of oil all over the place. But because of this dollar shortage... It's having trouble accessing fuel uh, for electricity. So there's been like 20, you know, I have I have access to a generator in the building I live in. But for people who don't, there's been like 15 hours of no state electricity throughout the day. Um, yeah. Imagine doing virtual school like that. You right. know, imagine you have kids, you can't do virtual school because the electricity's out. That's how it's been here. Like Lebanon can't buy fuel from, Iran actually offered to just give Lebanon fuel, but the U.S. allies in the government here blocked it and they often block stuff. They block like doing any dealings with China, you know, they block the U S does that with it's like pup- puppets in, in third world countries is they'll like get in the way 
of these countries being able to like do business with any U.S. adversary. So Lebanon is in a really like messed up situation right now, and it's only going to deteriorate further. And what about uh, Syria? Like, what are you're someone who's covered that region? You've been there. Um, you've been totally maligned um, for writing about it. You know, we've had Aaron Mate on the show, and he's someone who actually talks about basically this W. You know, this chemical weapons. Um, uh, hi, by the way, thanks for demonetizing this sh- this stream. I'm just going to predict that. Uh, no ads on this one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we should but, call it something else. Just like not call it Syria. We'll just like. Yeah, no, Shmeria. Shmeria, yeah. <laughs> and and shmemical weapons, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, like, uh, there's no, there's such little discussion of that here. And anyone who says anything like that is automatically you know, labeled a, an Assadist. And I really, I did kind of think that the Saddamist label would have maybe turned people away from that. Because I think people who don't like Saddam Hussein still got that, oh, right, opposing the war in Iraq doesn't make you pro-Saddam Hussein. And also, um, yeah, uh, Saddam Hussein can be many things, and that doesn't make you... The question is always, like, why is the focus where it is? With the media. So I think, I think though, I think with Iraq, it was easier to oppose that war because the U.S. sent, like, U.S. military to invade and bombed. Whereas with Syria, it's been this war where it was, like, a proxy war where they had this covert program to spend, like, a billion dollars, biggest covert program in, like, the history of covert programs to arm and fund these, these jihadist groups to try to overthrow the government instead of sending in U.S. soldiers to do it. So... And they dressed it up as this, like, pretty revolution. Um, You know, they just want freedom, right? Like, these, like, jihadis that, like, are aligned with Saudi Arabia and want to impose Sharia law just, like, want to give Damascus freedom from, like, minorities. Um, But that's how they dressed it up, and that was, like, a very appealing... Uh, appealing narrative for people because there was like the it fell in line with the whole Arab Spring narrative of like right. oh people just want freedom from dictators you know I, it was a very appealing narrative to me at the beginning right. um, like who doesn't want to support people who just like want freedom from a police state but of course that wasn't what was happening but I think that's why it was so much more difficult and easier to smear people and so much more difficult to oppose it because people didn't really know what was happening the media coverage was so one-sided and terrible and so I think that had a lot to do with it. But as for how Syria is doing now, I mean, yeah, the, the U.S. is no longer funding and arming jihadist groups to overthrow the government. But these sanctions, I mean, you know, there's Syrians I talk to who, like, will tell you, you know, war sucks, but war is typically, like, isolated to certain neighborhoods or, like, this city or that city. And you can kind of avoid it a little bit depending on where you're located. Um, and you can kind of, like, live in a little bubble. Whereas with these economic sanctions, like, nobody can escape them. It's just destroying the country. And, you know, let's remember, like, Iraq was before the U.S. invaded Iraq. They spent 10 years destroying that country with sanctions. We know about the infamous, you know, 500,000 children under the age of five died of, like, preventable diseases and starvation because of these sanctions. But it's not just that. The sanctions also destroyed education. Iraq had one of the highest literacy rates in the region in the 1980s. By the end of the 1990s, they had like the lowest literacy rate. Um, It destroys the government's ability to subsidize anything, uh, right? So people go hungry, people don't have jobs, like the the living standards go down dramatically. Then you have the flight of like the professional class, doctors, lawyers, teachers, 
these people all leave the people you need for like a healthy functioning society, um, especially doctors. That's what's happening in Syria. That's what's happened. The war already started that people were leaving, but now they're leaving even more because there's literally no future. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to send your kid to school to do what? There's no jobs. And if they do get a job, the salary is going to be worthless because the currency is constantly devaluing. Um, there's, there's just no future. So like so many people I know in Syria have actually left. They all live in you know, Dubai now or in mm. Lebanon or in Germany or they go to Canada or the U.S. Like they just try to get out. That's what everyone in Lebanon is doing now, too. They're all leaving the professional class. You have this flight of people, professors and doctors. And so that's really damaging to a society. It changes a society like really dramatically um, in a very, very negative way. And it softens them up for like regime change later. And that's kind of what's happening in Syria. So, you know, I hate to say it, but like if this continues, um, I don't know what's going to be left of Syria in another five or six years or 10 years. Like think about the people who, you know, there's like an educated class of Syrians who went to like, who like went to like higher education and now they're maybe my age, they're in their thirties. Right. But what about the Syrians who are 13 right now? Like, who, who are suffering educationally and nutritionally. Like, what happens in 10 years to them? What, what are their lives going to be like? Like, what do they have going for them? Not much, you know, and it's because of U.S. sanctions. So, mm. and it's sad because, like, despite what the damage that sanctions have done in the past, like, there is no movement or momentum in the U.S. whatsoever from any quarter of any move, like, anybody ideologically, to, to end these sanctions. There's been a couple of like, you know, attempts or maybe bills or maybe resolutions by the sort of progressive members of Congress saying like, let's reduce sanctions, but nothing else. And it's, it, it really is sad because these sanctions, like the level of, of suffering and devastation they do to a culture and a society is irreparable. Yeah. Um, we, by the way, just in case people are just tuning in, we are speaking to Rania Kalik, um, who is a journalist. She's also the co-host of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast with good friend of the show, Kevin Gastola, um, one of the only people to consistently cover Julian Assange's trial. And uh, you can also find her sometimes, uh, her writing at The Gray Zone. Um, and I wanted to give, you know, the audience and also Leslie a chance to ask any questions, but I, I have a bunch more. And, and, and while people rack their brains for their questions or put them in the chats, um, something I wanted to know was what was it that changed your mind? Because I know that you and other people, and this is used against Max Blumenthal, the fact that like you have changed your mind on Assad or on what is to be done about um, Syria, um, not even on, on Assad, more about what is, should be done about Syria and what the situation there is. So what is it that, what changed your mind and or what changed there? So I was like, for the first couple of years, I was never for U.S. intervention in Syria. I'm just like instinctively against U.S. military intervention always. That's my like default. Yeah, um, your go-to. Yeah, my go-to. Good default, but yeah. I, but, but I certainly had a different opinion about Syria and it was largely because I think I was like surrounded by people who were... <laughs> very pro-intervention. I meant like mostly like in Palestine solidarity, there was a lot of people, you know, the, the issue of Syria really destroyed Palestine solidarity movement in the U.S. Um, but, you know, people were just like giving me their narrative, their very one-sided narrative of it. And also it was a very one-sided coverage kind of thing. Like um, there was nowhere that was giving you really an alternative view that was accessible. Um, the alternative view I was getting was from my family. And mm. I, I thought they were just being like, 
assholes at first. Like I was like, oh, you guys just like don't know what you're talking about. You suck. But like when you have relatives, like I come from a minority group in the Middle East, and when you I have, I have Syrian relatives, and when you have relatives who are surrounded by U.S.-backed jihadist groups, like that changes your perspective on things because their lived reality completely contradicts what's what you're being told in the Washington Post and the New York Times, or even by some you know left-wing outlets like Democracy Now, right? So like that was a big eye opener for me, but I didn't really say much about it until I thought Hillary Clinton was going to be president and she was insisting she was going to do a no fly zone. And that's when I was like, okay, that's going to be really bad for my family. So I guess it was kind of a selfish thing. Mm. So then I took the opportunity to actually go to Syria because, you know, I'm also Lebanese. I have Lebanese citizenship. So it's actually quite easy for me to travel there. And in fact, I went with a delegation of Western journalists but I'm the only one who got in trouble for going. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I went with a delegation of like Washington Post, New York Times, like NPR was there, like all of these Western journalists um, to Syria. And I got to go to Damascus. I got to go to Aleppo, the government held side of Aleppo before uh, the East Aleppo, while well, East Aleppo was still under the control of jihadist groups that the U.S. kept calling like freedom fighters. Um, and I got to see what life was like there. And I got to travel around some other parts of the of Syria um, and it was a really eye-opening experience for me. I got to talk to people who were actually like active in the uprising in the beginning and explain to me why they no longer supported it. Um, and they no longer supported it because it, very, it became armed and you know, jihadist very quickly for reasons of outside intervention. And so this is the reason I changed my mind about Syria is actually like my own family's experience and actually going there and seeing for myself, um, which I got in a lot of trouble for. Right. <laughs> but... Yeah, I mean, and it's it's not an issue, like, of, I don't know how many times I have to say it, like, it's like, even now, you know, you see it, Katie, like, I'll tweet about something completely unrelated to anything in the Middle East, like, I'll tweet about a TV show, and I'll have, like, five comments being like, right. why do you love Assad, and I'm just right. like, oh my god, <laughs> get over yourselves, like, no one loves Assad at this point, it's just a matter of, like, you know, not wanting to, to collapse another state in the region so it doesn't turn into Libya, which has right. like open air slave markets now because of collapsing the state. Right. I mean, it's interesting because some you don't have. I mean, a lot of people have said like at the beginning there was a much more you know robust nonviolent resistance, and then they were a lot of them were killed, and now it's not. So I'm I'm raising that because there are people who are not at all fans of Assad, and also don't kind of like whitewash what happened. And I'm sure there are debates among. Um, people about how much violence there was in the beginning, but y you don't have to like Assad to think that the the resistance, the, the the rebels are now not moderate. Well, so there's also the issue of like, why whitewash at all? Look, from the beginning, from the beginning, there was people who were, pro there was like liberals who were protesting for like, they wanted more freedoms, right? But there was also armed people protesting and shooting at like right. government buildings. And like that that happened from the very beginning it wasn't like black and white you know what i mean there were some areas where there were students protesting like especially in damascus like damascus was the more like we want more political freedoms we want more political rights and then in like some of the more like rural areas um there was armed protests because this area has a history of like a fight between muslim brotherhood people and the government so like there was parts of syria where there was quite immediately uh, armed elements like shooting at doing what you saw at the Capitol, but even more violent on January 6th. Stuff like that was happening in certain Syrian localities 
from the beginning, right? That doesn't mean it's all bad, right? But it, let's be honest about that. Right. And of course, the government response was completely violent and out of control. That said, once you start, once you have like five different countries arming everybody, once you start a civil war in a country, everyone behaves like a savage. Doesn't matter what country it is. Could be the U.S. <clears throat> everyone behaves like a savage. Everybody, like there are no rules. Like we all mm -hmm. like to play, pretend there's these like humanitarian law rules that apply to war. That's BS. It doesn't exist in any war and it can't. No matter who's doing the war, whether it's the U.S. and Afghanistan or whether it's the Syrian government, you know, against people in one of its own cities, that's going to turn so brutal so fast and people are going to do terrible things to each other. So the answer to that is to reduce the violence, de-escalate the violence, and end the war. And what the U.S. and the people who supported intervention and supported the rebels did for like seven years was the opposite. They supported more war, and whenever a ceasefire was negotiated somewhere, um, they like opposed it because that benefits the government. So they were more interested and invested in overthrowing the regime than in ending the violence. And they're responsible for perpetuating that war for, and it went on for as long as it did because of those people. And what, um, someone's saying, what do you mean? What, what, what did, how did her position change? And I guess I should let you respond. I mean, I know how I perceived it to change, but do you want to share how it changed? And it wasn't radical, like 180, but no. people have looked at your tweets and been like, what? But you used to be much more critical. I mean, my position in the beginning was very, like, influenced by, by people who were pro-opposition. Um, and also, like, okay, so we grew up in the war on terror um, era. And so, like... As Americans, we view anything that's like talking about Islamic radicalism, you know, or terrorism with a skeptical eye, as we mm. should, and we're like right. immediately opposed to it. The thing is, there's a huge difference between the U.S. going to the other side of the world and bombing countries and occupying them because of Al Qaeda, and then like the Syrians the Syrian state responding to an Al-Qaeda threat inside its country that actually exists, right? There's a huge difference between that. And the same goes for Iraq, by the way. These countries were faced with like what you can think of as like the Middle East version of the KKK, like running rampant across the region, taking over areas and literally like forcibly converting and killing people for not being the right religion. Like that is what was happening in Syria, in Iraq. And it's crazy too, because like, and so my point is, is I saw that as like, I saw that through the prism of the US war on terror initially. And so I was very much like, you know, like these governments are so crazy, like they're all wrong and they should be dismantled almost practically right. because like they're just following the US war on terror rhetoric and policies. But when you actually look at it, like they really did have to deal with an existential threat of a bunch of psychos that the U.S. was arming. Right. Like, and it's just like, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, too, because ISIS and Al Qaeda and the jihadist groups the U.S. was arming are not that different. But for some reason, we were OK with the Iraqi government, with the help of the U.S., fighting ISIS. We understood that that needed to happen. Right. We understood that ISIS needed to be pushed out of Mosul. But then for some reason, we didn't understand Syria the same way, which was literally the same thing. It just was Al Qaeda instead of ISIS in places like Aleppo. And instead of the US government, it was the Russian government. And both of these places, everybody who was bombing committed atrocities and a lot of innocent people died. But like 
you're fighting Nazis. You know what I mean? So like, it's not a clean war and I'm not defending it or supporting it. I'm just saying like, there's more nuance to be had there. And so understanding it that way is what changed my perspective on the situation. It's like, okay, like this is really hard because you literally are fighting the Middle East equivalent of Nazis. How do you do it? I don't know. I don't know if there's a clean way to do it. Right. Um, we actually have a super chat that's pretty interesting. Um, uh, I have, let's see, let me just cut this. This is from Elliot. Uh, thank you, Elliot, uh, who writes, I think sanctions are counterproductive, not just because they hurt everyday ordinary people. There you go. Um, but also because they bring jackals, those who know how to navigate the black market, into wealth mm -hmm. and... Wait That's for so it. True. <laughs> Wait for it. Let's say I have it here. And and power and those very new forces restructure the economy and resist removing the sanctions. That's why the harder sanctions are in place, the harder they are to remove without war. Thoughts? Thought? Oh, it's Thoughts totally think? true. So sanctions, if I'm understanding that right, like I'll take it to where I think this is going is sanctions empower right. like the empower corruption. Like they empower a, uh, like an underground market where like these people actually do profit. There's in Syria, it's happened. There's, I mean, the Syrian government has become so much more corrupt. Um, everyone's corrupt. Everyone's just trying to make a buck. And now you have people who are like monopolizing certain industries uh, and treat and really like almost like a mafia. And U.S. sanctions are doing that in in all kinds of countries, but like in Syria, it's so bad. So absolutely, like sanctions actually make governments like way more corrupt and, and behave like mafias in order to survive but then also like rich people are assholes everywhere and they right. want to make money you know right uh really important point from elliot also you guys are always awesome glad to see you all in one place thank you elliot really amazing uh insight there really yeah <laughs> i um, agree yeah i couldn't agree more yeah um and what else uh Someone in the quotes goes, this broad never heard of heard of war of manifest destiny. We already had genocide in the USA. I, Leslie, you need to stop me. I shouldn't have read it. Yes, you can't read disc, the haters. But, but it, what does it that was, mean? Wait, what it does means that mean? I, they think that you haven't heard about, yeah, you're, you're really naive about, Wait, about manifest destiny. A hundred percent. I've never heard of manifest destiny. You're like, I oh, definitely... that's the thing. It's like when you when you close your eyes and you manifest a husband and a future <laughs> where you're, you know, you're this rich and secret. wealthy. It's a positive yeah, affirmations. Secret. Yeah, yeah positive exactly. Affirmations. Yeah. yeah, if you manifest um, uh, eliminating indigenous people, it it just may happen. You just Ooh. have to believe. Yeah. Okay. I love when people say that. I love when people are sarcastic and and like there's some great combination. It's I don't want to generalize. It's often among men though, where it's an amazing combination of um, like cocksureness and ignorance. You know what I mean? Like I could take one or the other, but put them together, it's like you know really. It kind of makes your head want to explode. Yeah. Like it's like it's like a certain level of unearned unearned arrogance. Like there's some yeah. people who are allowed yes. to be right. arrogant. Right. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. not you if you're stupid. Yeah. Not you if you're stupid. That should be a segment that we have, Ronnie, on the show. Not, not you, you if, if you're, you're stupid. stupid. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um. Um. Let's see. What else? I have. Uh. You know, some, okay, uh, Sam K. Rania, did you see HTS is being rebranded as moderate on PBS Frontline? What's HTS? The HTS is like the uh, rebranded version of what used to be Al-Qaeda. They've actually cut ties with Al-Qaeda. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, they've changed I guess they didn't manifest a future together. Yeah. <laughs> they need but, a couple of therapy in the secret, yeah. But yeah, so like PBS Frontline, um, 
went there and they like the guy Martin, whose last name I can't remember, uh, posted like a photo. Roland, not Roland H- Martin. No, no, Roland no, no, Martin. No, no, no. Oh, okay, no, no, no. Um, Martin is his first name. I can't remember his last name. It's like blanking on me not, because I, Martin, if you're watching, I do apologize. Um, I'm sure Martin's watching. But uh, We see they, you, Martin. We see you. You are seen. <laughs> we see yeah. you. But um, actually, I don't know. I'm kind of interested to see that documentary because, so Martin posted a photo of himself with Mohammed Al-Jalani, who's the head of HTS, who used to be the head of like Al-Qaeda in Iraq and then became the head of Al-Qaeda, or I'm sorry, not Al-Qaeda, of Al-Qaeda in Syria and actually split from ISIS He's a bad guy. He's a bad guy. Yeah. But he's wearing a but, suit. He's wearing a, no, but he's wearing a suit in the photo with the Martin Frontlines guy. Yeah. And it's just funny because it does look like a rebrand. That said, Martin did a really good documentary for Frontline. I'm calling him Martin. Like I know. It's friend. so funny. I'm looking at it. I just don't remember his last name. But he did. There was a really good, excellent PBS Martin Frontline. Smith? It's Martin Smith? Yes. Okay. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's called, um, it's called Assad Syria, I think. Um, and it's actually, he like went to Damascus and went all over government held Syria. It was so controversial at the time, but he really gave you a really good look that was so accurate of the government held areas of Syria because no one was ever doing that. Um, Mr. Smith goes to Syria. Mr. Smith goes to Syria, but it's really, really good. So I, am not going to just, I'm not going to write off his, you know, um, his nuance Idlib. Yeah quite yet because it might actually be interesting and he probably did pose a lot of really challenging questions to Muhammad Jalani like I could imagine him asking like why did you kill minorities right yeah that would be a good question yeah and I'd be interested to see how Mr. Jalani responds to that and Jalani is an interesting character though he like it's it's he became so he he, they call him El Jalani that's not his real name they call him El Jalani because his family is from the Golan or the Jalan Golan Heights Right. Um, But of course, they're not anymore because Israel took it. Um, So he grew up in Damascus. I know some people who actually grew up with him. He's like from like a middle class, well-educated family in Damascus, which is often the case with these Al Qaeda guys, these Al Qaeda leaders. Like Osama bin Laden was from like some elite Saudi billionaire family. Right. Um, Anyways, he's, he's an interesting character because I feel like so many of these people, it always goes back to Israel. Like, not like it's all Israel's fault, but like some part of like their grievance or their past that shaped them is somehow tied up with Israel's role in the region. And man, I just wonder how different the Middle East would have been if like the Europeans didn't create this like sectarian state. The first sectarian state imposed on the region, by the way. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, it's kind of weird when you're like reading, you know, um, Osama bin Laden's like manifesto. You know, some some beach reading. No, but when you if you read it, you'll see it's weird because he mentions Palestinians, and you're like, uh, I'm uncomfortable right now because he's uh, you know addressing a, a real injustice. <laughs> but that happens, and it's like it's it's true that one of the best PR moves for you know radicalization has been the has been Israel's treatment of Palestinians, and also the U.S.'s treatment of Israel's treatment of Palestinians. Right. Um, and there's also the issue of, like, with Jolani, he spent time in uh, Iraqi, like, prison. Because he went... So he went to Iraq to fight against the U.S. occupation. Right. Like, a lot of Muslims in the region did, right? Because the U.S. invaded. And that's how Al-Qaeda in Iraq started, by the way, is because of the U.S. invasion. And that's how he got his start. And then he ended up in, like, a U.S prison there so like there's just i mean it's like you know it starts with israel but then it goes to like all of these different aspects of imperialism are tied up with yeah 
with the, the, the histories of these kinds of people that would have never existed in the way that they ended up existing. Right. There's a lot like, of coexistence. Imperialism before. had, it had an imperialism not done its dirt. Like had yeah. imperialism not screwed up the region. Like, and, right. And I just do want to say, it's not like it starts with Israel. Like Israel is the original, you know, it's like, it, there's the a lot that sin. in yeah, the original <laughs> sin. Yeah. Um, no, but I mean, it, it, there's a lot that happens there that is, I mean, Israel is, this is a whole other discussion, but it, the, the power relationship between Israel and the United States, um, yeah. it's not, you know. It's a client state. I mean, yeah, Israel's yes. like America's like enforcer. Right. Like, yeah. And and not the other way around, which I, which I think sometimes right. people think it's not like. Yeah. Israel's no, I disagree with that. Yeah. I disagree with yeah. that take. It's the, uh, yeah. it's the, Israel's like America's arm in the region, yeah. as is Saudi Arabia. In well, other yeah. Israel too, right? is America's wife and saudi arabia <laughs> is america's side piece yeah i guess yeah. so one That's it's like they, it. yeah like one's yeah. out in the open and celebrated they have a special relationship and the other one they have a special relationship but it's not really public but they like wag their finger they're like wag their finger and yeah. kind of like hide yeah. it a little bit yeah yeah it's their side yeah um yeah. And, and and speaking of which i want to ask you about um you know i'm so happy that remember donald trump famously refused to do anything about Mohammed bin salman um, despite the fact that he, you know, ordered the dismemberment um, of, um, uh, I can never remember, Khashoggi. Um, but uh, now that we have Joe Biden in power, it's wonderful because he's done the exact same thing. Can you talk about the, <laughs> Joe Biden's uh, rebranding of, of, of basically not giving a shit or doing anything about Saudi Arabia? Yeah, they like write the Pentagon, or was it the Pentagon, the CIA? Like they released did some an intelligence investigation. Yeah, yeah. intelligence Report. or intelligence community, as they call themselves. Yeah. Which like, they're neither. Like, as if they're like the black community or something, mm. or like the LGBT community. Yeah. We have an community of intelligence. Community. Yeah. Yeah. POI um, people. Of like they call themselves yeah. a community. Yeah. Um, that is really funny. Anyways, the, the intelligence. The diaspora, community. the CIA diaspora. <laughs> right. Deep state so they diaspora. Released, yeah. They released like the the results of some investigation they did. We already knew, like it's not you know really news right. that Mohammed bin Salman ordered the dismemberment with a bone saw of this guy Jamal Khashoggi. But it's inaccurate, by the way, to call him like a dissident. They like go around calling, and also everyone's always like my friend Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, sure. Like, no, it's I mean it's like if he weren't if he didn't get published at the Washington Post, people wouldn't care. I, right. That's a, that's a, that, that's another issue, and yeah, well, also, he's problematic. So like, it's a, it's a, yeah. But also with him, it's like he wasn't a dissident in the sense of like against the Saudis. He just was like with a different faction of the royal right. family. Yeah. And so MBS didn't like him. Like he was yeah. an MBS dissident, I guess you could say. Um, didn't deserve to be dismembered. No one right. deserves to be dismembered. But and like, yet, yeah. And yet, at he, the so same he, time, exactly. Yeah. So he was, he was like, yeah, he had this awful thing. You know, he's murdered, uh, tortured. Yes. Yeah. And of course, the Biden administration can't do anything because, like, Saudi Arabia is our gas station, right? Like, we need their oil, but they're also so much more. Like, they're like, like Israel. They're a client state, right. and they're an enforcer of U.S. hegemony and interests in the region, particularly against Iran and against and against any group considered like uh, allied with Iran. They play, I think, almost a more important role in that sense in many ways than Israel does even because Saudi Arabia has been essential and its ideology has been essential in like splitting essential oils um, and, and fracturing Arabs around everyone. the region, yeah, essential, essential oils. But no, the Saudi Arabia's ideology, like Wahhabism and spreading it around and like this kind of like Sunni nationalism, 
that was so important to the foundation of Al-Qaeda and ISIS in the region, uh, that came from Saudi Arabia and Saudi-funded mosques and Saudi-funded stations. And that was like he, so vital to fracturing uh, Arabs across the Middle East along sectarian lines, way better than Israel could have ever done. Right. Um, if anything, Israel was a uniting issue. It united Arabs around the region, right? Because of their right. solidarity with Palestinians. Um, but yeah, the U.S. like backing and like then like Saudi and, and Qatari as well, like Al Jazeera Arabic played a huge role in pushing the sort of like Sunni victimization narrative that played into, you know, uh, celebrating the Al Qaeda ideology across the region. Um, Anyways, Saudi Arabia is, is, is so much more integral to that to that project. Um, so the U.S. needs Saudi Arabia. They just maybe have a little bit of a difference of opinion of who should be in charge. Not necessarily like they love the Saudi royal family. They just don't particularly like MBS. They like one of his cousins. Right. <laughs> like, you know, to, they'd rather one of his cousins be in charge. So that's the fracture point. But so the Biden administration might rhetorically be a little harsh, harsher and how they speak about MBS, but ultimately nothing's going to change with that relationship. Well, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I, I will I have often joked that it's like who said it, Trump or Noam Chomsky, because both of them will say basically like the U.S. won't do anything about Saudi Arabia because, um, you know, whatever. They just sold them a bunch of weapons. Um, yeah. But, you know, Trump says it as if there's nothing wrong with it. And Chomsky says it as if it is a bad thing, which it is. But so with Biden, it's like he doesn't do that. He can't he's not going to openly say that there are like major ulterior motives guiding it. So they just have to do this tap dance around it. I like that. I like the idea of Biden tap dancing. I know. Like the yeah. image of it in my head is funny. Yeah. He'd, <laughs> he'd fall over and sprain his he ankle would. like he did with the dog. He's so old. Oh my God. Like, whenever he talks, he just looks so like I'm like, go to sleep, Joe Biden. Go back to the basement, Joe. Like, seriously, it makes me feel sad for yeah, him. Yeah, do we have any Biden clips? We really should get some Biden clips or Saki clips. Brianna and Joy Gray and I did a lot of Saki <laughs> to me now uh, clips earlier. Ooh. But, um, yeah, uh, and then uh, let's see. There was another super chat we just had, Flash. Well, Ronnie, before you go, I guess I would want to know from you um, what the worst and best, I guess, like, what what should we be looking for from Biden, from his administration? I mean, we're going to get to the domestic stuff with Bree and Justin. But in terms of foreign policy, um, I think a lot of people, by the way, don't understand why the Iran deal is... is a, is problematic, like, because he's like, yeah, let's get back to the Iran deal. Can, I guess, can you explain why what he's doing is not really getting back to the Iran deal? Well, um, because the U.S. the U.S. <clears throat> broke the Iran deal, like they ripped it up under Trump, right? And Iran tried to keep abiding by it, but the U.S. kept imposing these insanely crippling sanctions that were just completely <laughs> crushing the Iranian economy. Um, and so it's like at this point. Now that Biden's in office, he's saying to the Iranians that we'll start negotiating with you about going back to the deal, but first you have to start abiding by the deal that we broke. But we're not going to give you any sanctions relief. Like the sanctions broke the Iran deal. The U.S. broke the Iran deal, but they're putting the onus on Iran to go back to a deal that they broke before they're even considering. And they're also trying to put all these other things on the table. So they're like, well, Iran also needs to stop with its ballistic, its ballistic missile program, right. and it needs to stop, 
you know, funding proxies across the region. It's like they're adding all these conditions while the Iranians are just like, get get your boot off our necks. And so I guess for people who like want to know what should you be looking for with foreign policy, I think that given the amount of economic uh, warfare that the U.S. is pushing against all of its adversaries, the most important thing to be opposing right now is sanctions. And it's really hard because sanctions is so unsexy, right? right? It's really easy to like oppose bombs. But like I explained, like sanctions do almost more damage to a country, to a society, to a culture than a bombing and invasion can do. So people need to like uh, be against sanctions and there really needs to be a push to add the opposition to sanctions to like a left agenda. And then also people need to remember like all this talk that we're having about socialism and capitalism, like imperialism is capitalism pushed out abroad. Like it is capitalism. It's capitalism enforced on other countries in really disgusting ways so that you can go like exploit resources and find more capital and profit for these monopolies that are like decaying America as well. So it's like one fight. You can't think of these things as separate. They're completely connected. And then there's also the other issue of like, we're spending all this money abroad. We're spending all this money on 800 military bases and just endless bombing campaigns. Well, like we don't do, we can't give people healthcare. Right. And it's like absurd. Like people need to start making those connections. They're completely tied together and it shouldn't be two separate things. There shouldn't be this like atomization on the left where there's this group that does foreign policy and this group that right. does domestic policy. Like these things need to be connected and these people need to be talking. So I do appreciate your show. I'll end it on saying that. I think it's really good that you're kind of, you're bringing that together. I think that's really, Thanks. really important. Thanks. I was wait. I, now you can leave. I, I fed her that line. I was just waiting for her to she say it. And then said it. That's why I kept her here so long. No, yeah. Great. Well, um, yeah. And where can people find you, Rania? You can find me on Twitter at Rania Kalik, and my work is all over the place at a lot of different outlets. So I would say go to my website, RaniaKalik.com, and you can keep up with my videos, my articles. I try to put it all there. Great. Okay. Thanks so note, much, Rania. Thanks, guys. Rania. Have a great nice time. You, See you next time. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Halper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper, and Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman, and our intern is Maria Trujillo. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you on the next episode. Bye.